Now, this is a Sunday that in many churches is called Pentecost Sunday. We certainly do not believe that in any way there are days that are more holy than others. We have, however, I think the privilege of joining in with many churches in dwelling upon the theme of the Holy Spirit this morning. And about a year ago, I actually preached from this text, but have wanted to return to it and have thought upon it more, dwelt upon it, and ask that you now turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. We break into Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost at verse 22, and we'll read to the end of verse 41, Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. But let us pray together before reading God's holy word. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that the same body that went into the tomb, was raised from the tomb, and that now our glorified, risen Savior, who ascended on high, poured out the Spirit of God upon his church on this day of Pentecost. We ask that that same Holy Spirit will now open our minds and hearts to the gospel of free and sovereign grace. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that this Holy Spirit that gave this word by divine inspiration so that it is God's word inerrant in the whole and in the part will illumine the page so that we may understand it, so that we may, so that we may drink it in, so that it may transform the lives of your people. And for those among us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask and pray for their salvation And that this same gospel preached on this day of Pentecost will by the Spirit's work pierce their hearts and draw them out of themselves and their sin unto Christ Jesus, who died for sinners, in whose name we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. This is the word of God. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, rightly in the Reformed Church, we give an emphasis to the uniqueness of Pentecost. We often dwell upon those things about this day that are unrepeatable. And that's right, we should do that. It's very needed in the church that we understand the uniqueness, the unrepeatability of the day of Pentecost, that the church was baptized with the Holy Spirit and formed into missionary church. But having said that, there is much about Pentecost that is repeatable, and we want to dwell upon that this morning from the sermon in particular preached by the Apostle Peter on this day of Pentecost. And so that's our focus, really, the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in convicting and calling sinners to Christ that work of the Spirit of God that continues until Jesus Christ comes again. And I want to point out four things. The first of which is this. The Holy Spirit uses means. The Holy Spirit uses means. To bless His church and to extend her evangelism, the Holy Spirit uses means, and two of those means are stressed here in this text. The first mean used of the Spirit of God is prayer. Now, I recognize that we do not see that directly in the sermon that is preached by Peter on this day, but it is what what we find behind his preaching that concerns me at this point. In chapter 1, before the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ told them, the disciples, that they were not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father which he said, you heard from me. Now that promise of the Father is the working of the Holy Spirit, his being poured out and the baptism of the Spirit. And we read in verse 14 of chapter 1, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Jesus therefore commanded his church to tarry in prayer and to wait for the powerful working of the Spirit of God. And prayer is still the Spirit's way of blessing his church. It is our ongoing call. After this sermon, in verse 42, we read in chapter 2, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They are a prayerful people before the Spirit of God was poured out. They are a prayerful people after the Spirit of God is poured out. And this is what is so needed today in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and in our own congregation, in my life and in yours. Earnest, 
united, vital prayer in dependence upon the Spirit of God, praying that the Holy Spirit will do that great work which only He can do of converting and saving sinners and upbuilding His kingdom. Throughout church history, true revival has been preceded by prayer. I've mentioned to you the 59 revival in Northern Ireland, in Ulster, 1859. The churches were emptying. There was false doctrine. There was little interest among the youth and the things of God. Two people, an old couple, began to pray and seek God. And God answered their prayer. And the churches were filled. The gospel of Christ was preached. True doctrine returned. People were converted. It was an amazing work of the Spirit of God. Or in the early part of the 20th century in Korea, so massive and wonderful was the work of the Spirit of God that it is sometimes called the Korean Pentecost. And 80,000 people were added to the churches in a very short period of time as men of God came together and confessed their sins, got upon their knees, and pled with God to work once again powerfully in their midst. Indeed, when that kind of prayer happens, it is not only a prayer for revival, but we can say that genuine biblical revival has already started. Do you know that's an encouragement to me? Do you know that there are ladies who are meeting before this service? I have not a thing to do with it. No one pushed them. No one said to them, hey, you need to do this. They're just meeting and they're pleading with God to bless this service. You know, there's a couple that gets on their knees every morning this side of the bed, that side of the bed, and they plead for God's Spirit to work in the midst of God's people here. And I can multiply that in our congregation. That is the work of the Spirit of God. Do your preachers preach with your prayers on their side? Does Jeff minister, do I minister with your prayers behind our work? Are we bathed in your prayer? How can you expect God to bless if we do not ask Him for it, if we do not plead with Him for it? Do you pray? Do you seek Him? Yes, in His sovereignty He can bless despite your prayers, but God has ordained the prayers of His people as a mean through which He works. God the Spirit uses means, but the second mean that we find here that is so important is the mean of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord has ordained the preaching of his word until Christ comes again. The Apostle Paul said that he was determined to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that his preaching was in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. He says in Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear without a preacher? God has ordained preaching in the midst of his people until Jesus comes again. And so we have Peter's sermon and what we see here. It's the first public preaching after the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the entire sermon from first to last points to Christ. You see this intense desire on the part of Peter the apostle to win men to Jesus. It is earnest. It is urgent. There is no mincing of words. You killed this Jesus whom God has exalted. And he emphasizes the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of the Father. Now I ask you this question. As you read this simple sermon of Peter's on the day of Pentecost, and you see that 3,000 people were converted and came to genuine saving faith in Jesus Christ, I ask you the question, why? Why was this sermon remarkably blessed? 
Yes, it's an orderly sermon. Yes, it is an orthodox sermon. Yes, it is sound in every way. But many a sound orthodox sermon is being preached and not blessed, remarkably. Why was it blessed? I will tell you why. There was no special rhetoric. Uh, There were, were no special means. Just truth. But the Spirit of God blessed the preaching of the Word. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that blessed this sermon on the day of Pentecost. Do you remember how Paul the Apostle put it when he wrote to the Thessalonians? He says in 1 Thessalonians 1.4, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. That is what is so desperately needed today, the powerful working of the Holy Spirit in your heart and in mine and through the preaching of the word in this world in which we live. You know, knowing Christ is something that is done to you. It is not something you can work up. You and I are dead in trespasses and sins. We have no ability to believe, no ability natively to repent. There we are, dead in trespasses and sins. And if we are going to come to the Lord, if we are going to know Him, if we are going to be truly converted, it is not something that you work up. It is something that the Holy Spirit achieves and accomplishes as he applies the work of the gospel to your heart, the work of Christ to your heart and to your life. Are you praying for that? Do you even long for it? Let me ask you, is your heart this morning cold to that? Are you concerned about lost people around you? Are you concerned with the blessing of God upon the preaching of the word? Does that even concern you in your week? Does it even even cross your mind as you're going through your everyday routine to remember that you are a part of the body of Christ and that you function as a part of that body in the extension of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world? Do you pray for it? Do you seek God for it? And so two means emphasized here, prayer and the preaching of the word of God. The Holy Spirit uses means. But the second thing as we move on in the text that we see is that the Holy Spirit exalts Christ. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 26, that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify concerning me. That is to say, it is the office of the Holy Spirit to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Peter say about Christ in this text? Well, first of all, in his preaching, he preaches that Christ was crucified. He says in verse 23 of Acts 2, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They acted against the will of God, but they did not act without the will of God. The cross of Jesus was no accident. It was planned and purposed by God for the salvation of his people from all eternity. It was ordained by God, but the guilt was completely theirs. The purpose to save is completely God's. And so he preaches Christ and him crucified, but also he preaches Christ crucified, risen from the dead. He preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ, for example, in verse 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Oh, thrill my heart and yours. Your Savior is not in a grave where he cannot save, but he has been raised by the power of God from the dead. 
You cannot destroy God's purpose in Christ. God has accepted all that he did in his once for all finished work. And it is proven by his bodily resurrection from the dead. And then, thirdly, he preaches Christ exalted by the Father. In verse 36, the culminating verse, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And before that, in the prior verse, he cites Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So that he is saying, this one that was crucified has been raised from the dead. He is exalted to the right hand of God. And he is totally subjecting this world unto himself. He is declared Lord, and he has poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon his church. So, the Holy Spirit exalts Christ in our midst. The Lord you crucified, Peter is saying, sits in infinite majesty. At the right hand of God, he rules and he reigns. He sits in the place of power and in the place of judgment and preaching to these men on this day, he is saying to them, therefore, bow, bow, bow the knee, bow, bow before this sovereign Lord. You resist Christ's kingdom in vain. Charles Spurgeon had a wonderful word on this. I notice that at this time, few writers or preachers use the expression, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have lives of Christ and lives of Jesus, but brethren, he is the Lord. Jesus is both Lord and Christ. We need to acknowledge his deity, his dominion, and his divine anointing. He is God over all, blessed forever, and we can never praise him too much. A great and grievous error of the times is a want of reverence for our Lord and his sacrifice. To sit in judgment on his sacred teaching is to spit in his face. To deny his miracles is to strip him of his own clothes. To make him out to be a mere teacher of ethics is to mock him with a purple robe. And to deny his atonement in philosophical phraseology is to crown him with thorns and crucify him afresh and to put him to an open shame. Be not guilty of this, my hearers. For God hath made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. Let us worship him as Lord and trust him as Christ. The Holy Spirit exalts Christ in the midst of his people. And he is both Lord and Christ. Do you know that? Have you submitted your heart to him as both Lord and Christ? Has the Spirit of God so worked within your heart? Or is he so working even at this moment? But I want you to see something else. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit also convicts of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Now Peter has been preaching, do not neglect the exalted Lord. He rules in the realms of nature and providence and grace. You must not ignore this Lord. And you remember that Jesus said in John 16 verse 8, And when the Holy Spirit has come, He will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That is to say, 
When the Spirit of God comes, He brings conviction of sin. What does the Spirit use to bring conviction? Well, it's obvious in this text. He uses the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The preaching about their sin in relation to the cross in particular. These are the same ones who had before Pontius Pilate cried, crucify him. These are the very ones who had cried out, his blood be on our heads and on our children. These men, however, now know that they're in trouble. Blood drips from their hands. They murdered the Lord of life. They see something of the law of God. They see that they stand before a holy God, naked and undone and in need of a Savior. They are convicted of their sins through the simple preaching of the word of the living God. Well, what are the sins of our day in relation to the cross? Let me mention a few. One sin in relation to the cross today is theological blasphemy. Those in so-called evangelical churches, much less those that call themselves liberal, in so-called evangelical churches today that are denying the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ and preaching old heresies in its place. Beloved, that's happening. That is really happening. Ignoring Christ's person and work when it is so clearly revealed to us on the pages of Holy Scripture is a sin of, of denying the cross. Rejecting the gospel out and out when you hear it proclaimed. I wonder if there are those within your hearts here who hear the gospel Sunday after Sunday and yet have rejected the gospel out and out. You know, I had a friend who said to me last week, Even though I'm a Christian, I was reading Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and when I heard about hell under my feet, I raised my feet off the floor. You know, he was understanding something, wasn't he, of the reality of God's greatness, of his infinite majesty, of his justice, rejecting the gospel out and out. And then there is forsaking Christ, when once having professed faith in Christ, but finding that you are a false professor. These are sins in relation to the cross. But as we look at this text, what happens when there is true conviction? Well, there is shame. I'm ashamed that I have sinned against this lovely Lord. You think of our sin, and our faces turn red as the flames of hell. And he was so plain to them, wasn't he? He says in verse 23, This Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of of lawless men, there is shame, but also there is fear. There is great fear. Oh, what my sin deserves in the presence of a holy and a righteous God. That's why we sing those lines from Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Because when we see our sin, there is, there is a right response of fear. But also, there is something more. Where there is true conviction of sin, there is self-condemnation. Self-condemnation. What must we do? Do not do violence to your conscience, people of God, by suppressing this truth. Do not do violence to your conscience, unbeliever, by denying this truth. 
self-condemnation, seeing myself as I really am and all of my need before a holy God. My friends, what happened on the day of Pentecost, I ask you? What is going on here as Peter preaches the word of God and proclaims the good news of Jesus Christ? The Holy Spirit is showing them the enormity of their sin. And that, again, is something that is very missing from preaching and from responses today. We are told, come to Jesus so that he can do all sorts of good things for you. He's kind of a divine butler. You come to Jesus and he's going to do all sorts of nice things for you. You're going to have all kinds of things. And then, of course, when those things don't happen, people are let down and they are let down hard because they have not believed Christ and they have not trusted in Christ through a true gospel. The true gospel does not say to you, come to Christ and your problems go away. The true gospel says, you come to Christ, your problems are going to increase. It's through much tribulation that we enter into the kingdom. The true gospel says the real issue is not that you have problems in life. The real issue is that you are a sinner. And you and I need to see the enormity of our sin. And we need to come to Christ in order that we might know forgiveness of our sins. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit makes people think. You're tripping along in life. You're not thinking about death and hell and eternity. It may come occasionally, you push it aside, but all of a sudden, the Spirit of God begins to work in your life, and you begin to think, yes, I'm going to live somewhere forever. When I die, which could be at any moment, I'm going to stand in the presence of a holy God. I'm going to give an account for original and actual sin. You begin to think. And you begin to think in ways that you never thought before. That is what happens when the word of God is effectually applied by the spirit of God. And conviction of sin begins to happen in the heart and life of a sinner. Which leads us to the fourth thing we want to see. The Holy Spirit converts sinners. Not only does he convict, but thank God the Holy Spirit converts sinners to Jesus. Look at verses 37 and 38. Now when they heard this, all of this sermon, that he is Lord and Christ, Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 41, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The Holy Spirit converts. How does he do this? He gives life to the dead. He regenerates. He grants the new birth. Faith and repentance are results of the Spirit's work. We can't produce them ourselves. It is a sovereign work of the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit grants faith and repentance, just as he did to these on the day of Pentecost. What is faith? It is reliance. It is trust in Christ alone for redemption. What is repentance? Well, it's the missing note in preaching today. It's the missing note that means a change of mind and with it a change of direction. Here are these men and all of a sudden they say, we are in trouble with the law of God. 
I need to turn. The Spirit of God presses upon me the fact that I can't keep going in this direction. What shall we do? How can we be delivered? How can we be saved? And these are not the causes of salvation, faith and repentance. These are the soul crying out, I can do nothing of my own to save myself. I can contribute no merit. I can contribute nothing to my salvation. Since therefore I can do nothing, what can I do? Since I can do nothing, how can I be saved? Because these are the gifts of grace to those who by grace see their total ruin and impotence, which is what these men saw on this day, their total ruin and inability to save themselves from their awful estate. These are the people who cried out, crucify him. And now, what a change. Let his blood be upon our head and upon our children. And now, they cry out, how can we be saved from our sins? How did this change come about? Immediate change come about. Once dead in trespasses and sins, now they see that he is both Lord and Christ because the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone can open the heart of a sinner. We cannot do it. The Holy Spirit alone can do it. So there's the sinner. Deaf and dust in his soul, and in the twinkling of an eye, God's Spirit raises him to spiritual life. Mr. Spurgeon says so beautifully, men's hearts are very hard to affect. If you want to get at them for any worldly object, you can do it. A cheating world can win a man's heart. A little gold can win a man's heart. A trump of fame and a little clamor of applause can win men's hearts. But there is not a minister that can win man's heart himself, and that is true. We can convert no one. You know, it's an amazing thing to me that a person can walk into this room and not know the Lord Jesus Christ, can hear the glory of the gospel, the greatness of Christ's person, the wonder of the cross, the power of the re resurrection, and walk out and care nothing about what he heard, not even understand what he's heard. It's not because the preacher wasn't clear. It's because the Spirit of God doesn't indwell him. Another can come in, just as much a sinner, and he hears the glory of Christ, the wonder of grace, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the Spirit of God indwells him, opens his heart, regenerates him, and saves him from his sin. Only God the Holy Spirit can do that. And the church needs to know that. If the church understood that, if the evangelical church understood that today, the evangelical church would be throwing out all of these means, all of these silly, silly means that they want to add to worship and to evangelism. They would throw them all out, thinking that somehow this is going to save people or make them more savable or make things more attractive. No, 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 no. If anything, it just fills our churches more and more and more in our memberships with unconverted people. Let me tell you, when persecution comes, we'll see. We'll see, won't we? We'll see how many are truly converted. 
The Holy Spirit can break the bonds of man's bound will and set him free in the Holy Spirit alone. And that's why we need to plead to him. Can these dry bones live? Yes, when the Spirit of God is at work. And did you notice that the Holy Spirit saves all sorts? Let's go back in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let's read just a few of these verses. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. These were the tongues spoken by the apostles. They were just languages that these people understood, heard the gospel in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the Magnalia Dei, the mighty works of God. These Jews, these proselytes from all over the world, these devout men, devout but lost and dead in trespasses and sins, Babel is being reversed. The word of God is being proclaimed to the nations. Geography, all over the map. Nationality, all sorts of people. Upstanding people, yes, they were upstanding, but every one of them was a murderer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now tell me, if on the day of Pentecost, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, men who slew the Lord of glory, If men from all walks of life, all parts of the world, all of them murderers of Jesus Christ can be saved, what sin can he not pardon? What person from what walk of life can he not forgive? What sinner can he not take to himself in pardoning mercy? If he can save these who cried out, crucify him. He can save you, and he can save me. Do you know this old hymn? I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and in blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never till my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. I remember that day in which I recognized my sin put him there. And I had that very feeling within my heart. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. And the answer, the answer, the answer is this. My trembling soul can only be hid under the blood that was shed 
because of my sin that put him there. You see, we are dealing here with matters of eternity when we deal with the gospel, my friend. We're not dealing with trust in Christ and you'll have large bank accounts and big houses. All of that's going to perish. Trust in Christ and you'll always have a healthy body. No, no. No, he doesn't say anything like that in the Bible. He says the opposite to us. You trust in Christ. It is an issue of where you will spend eternity. I was reading the memoirs of Robert McShane last week, just refreshing myself. I was reminded how often preachers in his day had to deal with death and dying just constantly. He was writing a letter. He says, did I tell you of the boy I was asked to see on Sabbath evening? Just when I got myself comfortably seated at home, I went and was speaking to him of the freeness and fullness of Jesus when he gasped a little and died. About two pages over, he writes in his diary, February 5, 1839, call suddenly in the evening, found him near death, careless family, many round him, spoke of the freeness and sufficiency of Jesus, come unto me, etc., the wrath of God revealed from heaven told him he was going where he would see Jesus, asked him if he would be his savior. He seemed to answer. His father said, he's saying yes, but it was the throw of death. One or two indescribable gasps, and he died. I sat silent and let God preach. So you see, it is still true that the grave is at the foot of this pulpit. The infant mortality rate may not be the same in the providence of God. We may have, generally speaking, longer lives, most of us, never know. But it's all about God saving sinners from hell and recovering us to the fellowship we broke with him through Jesus Christ's shed blood. That's the gospel. So let me, let me work this in two directions as we bring it to a conclusion. My lost friend, the the sinners in this text found remission of their sins through the very blood they had shed. The Holy Spirit is able to make you rely upon the blood of Jesus for eternity. And so I say to you with fullness and freeness, come, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Come to Christ. Come to him. Come to him without delay. And behold, the wonder of his love and sacrificing himself in the place of sinners like us, that we may be saved from our sins. But then I want to apply this secondly to us as a believing congregation. A call to prayer for our congregation. Look, he preaches the gospel. God blesses that gospel. God has a multitude which no man can number. 
that he has redeemed from every tongue, tribe, nation, kindred on earth. Do we not long to be used of God to see those brought in whom Christ has bought with his own shed blood? I call you, I call us to prayer. Now, there was a great revival in 1857 and 1858 in New York City. No baits, no switches, no circuses, no unordained, unappointed means, only the vital power of the Holy Spirit seen in prayer and preaching. The striking of the bells in New York City at 12 o'clock noon became known as the hour of prayer in a local newspaper because it seemed the whole city was at prayer every day at noon. This went on for several years. The whole church was down on its knees before God. Man was abased. God was exalted. And so I call upon us. Let us abase ourselves, humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Let us exalt the exalted Lord. Let us seek the Lord. Let us call on his name. Let us not tire of pleading for revival. Let us pray for the power of the Holy Spirit on our ministry. Spurgeon said, you cannot get out of the church what is not in it. We must have a living church for a living work. And that is true. So people of God, I ask you, will you do this? Will you pray? Will you get upon your knees? Will you passionately seek the Lord in your life and for the life of this congregation that God will bless us and the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the world through this little spot on the globe? Amazing thing, isn't it? Look at the galaxies. Look at the stars. Look at this little speck that we call earth. Look at this little speck on the speck called Lakeland, this little speck on the speck on the speck, Covenant Presbyterian Church. And yet as we pray, God, the Holy Spirit, can so empower the work here to use us to draw men as the Spirit of God blesses the preaching of the Word and your lives and your witness to save sinners throughout the globe. And so I'm challenging you, I'm challenging me, I'm challenging us to, people of God, let us believe more in the Holy Spirit. Let us believe more in the Holy Spirit. You say to me, Pastor, how will you know? How will we know if we're actually believing more in the Holy Spirit? Well, I'll tell you how. This is the first sermon after the ascension of Christ, isn't it? The very first. What was the result? Christ was exalted. How will we know that we are believing more in the Holy Spirit? It won't be because people speak in tongues or people are getting healed all over the place. I'll tell you how. You will know as a congregation you are believing more in the Holy Spirit when Christ is more exalted in your lives. Because that is the office of the Spirit of God. When He comes, He will speak of me, said Jesus. You will know that you are believing more in the power of the Holy Spirit 
when the gospel is believed, when you believe the gospel and others believe the gospel, how will we know that we are believing more in the Holy Spirit? Other things fade into the background, but in our preaching, in our praying, in our witnessing, and in our daily living, we exalt the Lord of glory. This gospel was heard because of the Spirit of God. You see in verse 14, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Then he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. These words of preaching the good news of Jesus Christ, but men will not hear them, really hear them, unless the Holy Spirit is at work. And so you will hear his word, and others will hear his word when the Spirit of God is at work. Not special gifts, not miracles, not big bank accounts, not trouble-free lives. Don't look there. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. Exalt Christ. Exalt the Lord. And hear with obedient hearts His Word. And you will know that you are believing more in the Holy Spirit. And God's people said...